Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it is great to be here. Thank you, uh, Cadet Fazer and the Thomistic Institute for inviting me. And thank you, West Point, for hosting me. It's been great so far. Um, I've talked at a number of neat places, uh, but this is definitely the most distinctive institution I've ever had the uh, privilege of, of speaking at. Um, it's a really cool place. I don't think I need to tell any of you that, but um, uh, I'm really struck by it. So uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, I am, we tried out different microphones and so forth, and we uh, found that the best was here at the podium, which means, although I, I normally like to pace around a little bit, I'm just going to stay planted here. Um, uh, but I think this will help you to, to hear me. Okay. So does evil disprove God? That's the question we want to ask uh, this evening. Um, we're going we're to be talking about uh, what is sometimes called the problem of evil. Um, there are actually a variety of problems of evil, really. There's, there's an existential problem. How do I deal with evil? How do I deal with suffering in my own life? What does suffering mean for me when I experience it? How do I cope with it? Is it going to make, uh, is it going to make uh, me a monster, <laughs> or is it going to make, make me a better person, more virtuous? An existential problem of evil. There's a pastoral problem of evil. How do I deal uh, with uh, and relate to others who are suffering evil? How can I help them, assist them, comfort them? What should I say to them? A pastoral problem. There's an ethical problem of evil. Uh, what, what should I do to try to minimize evil, to remedy evil, it, it sort of as it's found in a large scale throughout the world? What are my obligations to do so? It's an ethical question. But tonight we're, we want to focus on uh, one of various theoretical problems of evil. And it's the problem about the, whether the sort of evil the type of evil and the amount of evil we find in the world is consistent with the existence of God, a God who's supposed to be all-powerful and all-good. It's a theoretical problem about whether the, these things can fit together. Can God's existence be consistent with, compatible with the kind of evil we find in the world? Or does the evil we find in the world count as evidence against God's existence? Probably, uh, say more than just probably, I, I think the most influential argument, if there's an argument against God's existence, would be an argument from evil, an argument that takes evil as evidence in some way or other against God's existence. And so I want to set that argument out. Uh, there are various ways you could do it. I'm going to set it out in a certain way that will make it easy for us to talk about it, and then think a little bit about how 
uh, someone who wants to defend the existence of God in the face of evil uh, might respond. So let's consider the argument. Um, it's, it starts off uh, with a premise, if God exists, then God is all good and all powerful. Right? That seems to just follow from our basic understanding or notion of God. But what follows from God's being all good and what follows from his being all powerful? If God is all good, then it seems that God eliminates evil as far as he can. Isn't that what we would expect from an all-good being? If God is all-powerful, on the other hand, then there are no non-logical limits to what God can do. What do I mean by non-logical there? Uh, most people who maintain God's omnipotence don't think that that means that God can bring about contradictions, for example, square circles and the like. But the thought is God can do, right, can bring about any state of affairs that is possible, that doesn't involve a contradiction. If God is all-powerful, then there are no non-logical limits to what he can do. But if God eliminates evil as far as he can, and there are no non-logical limits to what God can do, then it seems like there would be no evil, right? But you know what? There is evil. Seemingly quite a bit of it. And what follows from those premises? God does not exist. So we have an argument against God's existence from the evil we find in the world. When people are thinking about this problem of evil, this argument from evil, there are usually two types of evil that they distinguish and want to talk about. Moral evil, I don't need to tell you what he's doing over the phone here, right? And natural evil. You might think of moral evil as evil done, things, uh, evil that is in our action or in us because of the things we do or that we fail to do. We do what we should not or we fail to do what we should, right? Moral evil. Natural evil is the sort of evil that uh, comes about from things uh, suffering as the result of various causes. We'll come back to this, uh, this argument. We might ask ourselves uh, what premise we would reject if we wanted to come to the defense of, of God uh, or the claim that God exists in light of the argument from evil. Maybe you've already thought about it. Should I, if I should ask for a show of hands. Let's consider a, a, a suggestion from, from St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, this is the Thomistic Institute uh, hosted event after all, so it's not surprising that I would draw heavily on, on St. Thomas. Um, now, independently of the Thomistic Institute, I happen to think that St. Thomas has a lot uh, to say to us here. Um, so we're a good fit. Um, here's, uh, here's 
a passage from St. Thomas uh, reflecting on, on the evil we find in the world and its relationship to God. Thomas says, many good things would be taken away if God permitted no evil to exist. For fire would not be generated if air was not corrupted. Nor would the life of a lion be preserved unless the ass were killed. Neither would avenging justice nor the patience of a sufferer be praised if there were no injustice. So what is Thomas saying here? He seems to be saying that there's a certain cost of getting rid of, of evils, right? That you, you can't get rid of certain evils in the world without also giving up certain goods, is the claim he seems to be making here. If we go back to the, the argument, what, what premise then would Thomas to be, seem to be challenging in that passage? It could be challenging the second premise, right? The claim that if God is all good, then God eliminates evil as far as he can. Well, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe God could eliminate all evil, right? But there might be a cost of doing so. It might not be possible for God to eliminate all evil without also uh, missing out on a lot of good. And so it might be that God permits evil uh, for the sake of good, in a sense. He allows evil to exist within his creation. He could have created things in such a way that there is no evil, but he allows evil to exist for the sake of certain goods that presuppose that evil. It seems to me that Thomas is implicitly rejecting that second premise of the argument from evil. Let's talk a, a, a little bit about uh, what evil is, or at least the way uh, Aquinas understands it. Um, the, that dog looks pretty happy, doesn't it? Of course, have you ever seen an unhappy dog at the beach? I haven't. I don't think, I've never seen an unhappy me at the beach. But I haven't seen an unhappy dog either. It's something we have in common with a dog, I guess. Um, Tom, for... For Thomas, in this, and here he's drawing off of a, of a long tradition uh, of reflection on the nature of evil, the, the ontology, the metaphysics of evil. Evil is not some sort of positive entity or item, but it's rather the absence of something. Evil is the absence of the good that is natural and due to a thing. Um, uh, the word that gets typically used for that is privation. Evil is a privation. It's the lack of some good or perfection that a thing ought to have given its nature. This is a happy dog, but it's missing something it ought to have, right? To be a, a healthy dog with a, the full, fully functioning uh, limbs that a dog should have. It's missing a leg, right? And so it's suffering an evil in that respect, an example of evil as privation. Well, I want to I talk uh, uh, here about why God might permit natural evil. The, the, the largest portion of the talk will actually focus on that. And then also why God might permit uh, moral evil, building on that suggestion 
uh, from St. Thomas. So beginning with natural evil, I want to suggest three reasons God might permit natural evil. The first, and what might be the most uh, unfamiliar to you, even if you've thought about this topic before or read about this topic before, is the idea that natural evil just comes along with the good of God's creating a material universe or ecosystem. The second is that God might permit evil that we not become satisfied or complacent in the enjoyment of this world. And a third reason God might permit natural evil is in order to make possible moral and spiritual goods which presuppose natural evil. So let's begin with this, this first idea. And it's the one I'll actually spend the most time on because I suspect it's the one that's, that's least familiar to most people. This idea that natural evil comes along, it's part of a package, if you will, of creating a material universe or ecosystem. The idea here is that it's of the very nature of material things that they are vulnerable to decay and corruption. I think Aquinas would think that that's, that's part of the package, that's part of the nature of, of something that is material, that it's subject, vulnerable to corruption and decay. And that in a world of interacting material objects, the action of some objects deprives, corrupts, or uses up other objects. It's part of the nature of, uh, of material objects and their interaction that this is, this is the case. Okay? And we can think about this at all different levels of, of material reality. So, I mean, St. Thomas, I, don't, I don't, you know, don't think he knew much modern chemistry, but if you'll think back to that passage I, sh I showed you uh, a few slides back, he, he notes as an example of, of uh, goods that would be taken away if there weren't evils, he says fire would, would not be generated if air was not corrupted. Okay? And of course, we know that fire consumes air, right? So if we think uh, 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 or certain kinds of uh, elements or molecules, oxygen, for instance, is consumed, right? If we think of oxygen as a material thing, right? It's a thing that is like all material things, subject to decay and corruption. And there are other things whose action, whose, whose proper action and proper flourishing tends to consume it. And fire is an example of that. The burning of fire tends to the, the consuming of, of the oxygen. Right? One thing here, the fire is flourishing, if you will, is, is being good fire, doing its thing as fire, acting well as fire at the expense of another material thing, oxygen, that gets used up. Well, we can think of different levels or different kinds, fundamental kinds of material thing. So there are non-living material substances, like fire, like oxygen, like the elements on a periodic table. right? Um, then there, there are living material substances of sort of the low, at the lowest level of life, what we might think of as vegetative life forms that have the, the, the most basic properties that a thing has to have in order to, to, to be alive. So capable of taking in nutrition, 
capable of growing, of reproducing. So plants would be examples of this uh, type of, of life. Up a level from that are animals. Animals have those basic properties that all living things, including plants, have the capability of taking in nutrition, growth, reproducing. But they have additional powers as well. They can experience the world through the senses. They can experience desire and aversion. They can feel desire and aversion, right? You might say there's certain things that a plant desires, right? It might desire sunlight, it might desire water, but, but uh, we don't think it feels it, right? But the animals can, presumably, right? And then there are human beings, uh, which are animals, but they're animals with another set of distinctive powers that most animals, as far as we know, don't have, rational animals. So they have all those powers that plants have and, an, and that animals have, but also the power of reason and will. So we see different, different sorts, different kinds of material beings in a hierarchy from the non-living up to different uh, types and categories of life, levels of, of life. And all of them, as material beings, are subject to corruption and decay. It's part of what it is to be a material thing. And all of them are such that they, they are interacting in a world uh, where the action of one thing, you might think of the causal influence of one thing, tends towards uh, the corruption of other things or the deprivation of other things. And so we saw, already saw this example in the case of, of fire and, and oxygen. Um, here we see another example of it, right? Material things, right? The giraffe doing its giraffe thing, right? Uh, the action of the giraffe, right? Comes at the expense of the, whatever this is, the plant or the tree. Thomas says a lion would cease to live if there were no slaying of animals. Well, we, of course, know this, right? The action of the lion. Uh, tends towards the deprivation, comes at the expense of its prey. But, I, but, I, but, I, but it's, a, it's a similar kind of thing, in a way, is what's going on with the fire and the oxygen. It's the action of material things tends towards the corruption of, of a deprivation of other material things. Interact. For, you know, the, if it helps of you, for you to think of something like... Um, you know, exchanges of energy, right? From, you know, uh, you know at, from one thing to another, right? Um, uh, coming at the expense, say, of one system or part of a system and, and, and to the benefit of another. Um, if that's helpful, you could, you could think uh, that way. So why might God permit natural evil? Thomas says, corruption and defects in natural things, in other words, natural evils, are said to be contrary to some particular nature, some particular thing, yet they are in keeping with the plan of universal nature. So we're of, of nature as a whole. Inasmuch as the defect in one thing yields to the good of another. The defect of the of the plant 
yields to the good of the giraffe. Defect in the oxygen air leads, yields to the good of the fire, and so on. Since God then provides universally for all being, it belongs to his providence to permit certain defects in particular effects that the perfect good of the universe may not be hindered. For if all evil were prevented, much good would be absent from the universe. So there are genuine evils, like it's, it's, a, de it's a privation, a deprivation of the, of the zebra, right? When it gets uh, taken down and consumed by the lion. It's a deprivation of the, of the tree when it gets consumed by the giraffe. Uh, but God permits uh, these sorts of defects because God wants the good of lions and giraffes, right? And moreover, wants the good of, of, of nature as a whole. So we're permitting defects in parts of things of nature for the good, for the sake of, of the good of, of the whole. Now, this raises an interesting question, I think. But I think it's a question that helps bring, uh, as it were, some of the, the choices into to focus, right? We might ask the question, uh, if, if it is part of the, the very nature of material things, a material universe, a material ecosystem, that the things in that system undergo corruption and decay, are vulnerable, right? act at the expense of each other in various ways. Would it have been better for God just not to have created the material world? Should God have created only spiritual creatures? In other words, only angels. That's a picture of an angel, okay? It doesn't look like a purely spirit. It looks like a material creature that has a body and wings, okay? It's Archangel Gabriel. That's just a representation, all right? Angels are pure spirits. Okay? They're not material, physical creatures. And Aquinas thinks God created gobs of them. There are lots of angels, right? We don't see them because the things we see are material. But, but Aquinas thought that, and the, the tradition that he's a part of, thought that there were lots of, of these purely spiritual beings. And you might ask the question, would it have been better for God to have left creation at that point, created only pure spirits and no material things, if part of what was involved in the package of creating material things was corruption and decay? Would it have been better for God not to have created the material world? No non-living material substances. No plants and other non-sentient life forms. No animals. No human beings. Or you might imagine uh, uh, another variation of this is say, well, I'm not so worried about cor the corruption of oxygen and of plants. What really what bothers me is the, uh, the corruption uh, and decay of things that can feel the, that as pain, which presumably the, the plants and the oxygen can't. But so maybe, maybe God should have created uh, inanimate material substances, that is, non-living material substances, and maybe he should have created plants, but no animals, no humans. Maybe that would have been better. Should God have created only angels? Aquinas doesn't think so. 
In his view, the perfection of the universe requires that there should be not only beings incorruptible, in other words, angels, pure spirits that are, don't have the matter that is part of the makeup of the sorts of things that can be corrupted, material things. The perfection of the universe, he says, requires that there should be not only incorruptible beings, like angels, pure spirits, but also corruptible beings, material beings. So the perfection of the universe requires that there should be some things which can fail in goodness. That is, they can suffer a privation. They can lack, they can be deprived of, of perfection that they ought to have, an integrity of wholeness of, of being that they ought to have. Now it is in this that evil consists that a thing fail in goodness. So Thomas is telling us here that, that it's part of the perfection of the universe. It adds to the perfection of the universe that God create material beings, even though part of being a material being is to be corruptible, right, which means to be capable, uh, vulnerable to evil and suffering. He expands a, 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 some on his reasonings for why it, it's, it, it, this is a good thing it, uh, that God uh, create uh, material things as well as non-material things. It starts off with a little bit of uh, an idea about why it is that God creates in the first place. Um, Thomas suggests that God brought things into being. Why? In order that his goodness might be communicated to creatures and be represented by them. So his reason for creating is, is basically to share what he has, to share the being and the goodness that he has with other things, with creatures. If he didn't create, there would be nothing other than God that had being and goodness, right? Everything else other than being and God has its goodness, has its whatever perfection it has, because it's been shared to it, communicated to it by God. That's why God creates out of generosity. And that the goodness that is first in, in God might be reflected, represented in these things that he's created, mirrored in them, participated in by them. But uh, he notes, Thomas notes, that because his God's goodness could not be adequately represented by one creature alone, he produced many and diverse creatures that what was wanting to one in the representation of the divine goodness might be supplied by another. Hence, the whole universe participates the divine goodness more perfectly and represent it better, represents it better than any single creature, whatever. So God's goodness is infinite, it's unlimited, it's such that no single creature or top, type of creature would represent or reflect the divine goodness as well as a diversity of different kinds of creatures of all different levels. And so he goes on to talk about things seem to come in degrees, natural things, material things seem to come in degrees of that different levels of the sort that we talked about before. Some seem to be of a higher level than others, but all of them are willed by God because they contribute to the perfection of the universe and better reflect God's goodness and perfection than just a single level of, of creature would. Just spiritual creatures alone 
or just material creatures of, of, of certain levels but not others, right? The universe as a whole is more perfect for having it all. So here's a question I, 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 I think we should be asking, or, or maybe I should put it this way. We, we should at least think about which question we should be asking when we're thinking about natural evil. So one question might be, would it have been better for God not to have created a world with natural evil? Would it have been better for God not to have created a world in which there is natural evil? Another question is, would it have been better for God not to have created a material world, a material ecosystem, a world of plants, fish, cats, dogs, and humans? I think a lot of people want to ask that first question as if God might have created a material world with uh, plants, cats, fish, humans, and so on with, with no natural evil, right? But the point is it's part of the package of, of, of a material world that it includes beings that are subject, vulnerable to corruption and decay, and that in their actions tend to the corruption of other things, not because the, the goal is that there be deprivation of other things. The goal is that they act well as the kinds of things that they are, but the interaction tends to come at the expense of other things. So the question I think we should really ask ourselves when we're thinking about natural evil is, um, is natural evil so bad that we would, would, it, would it have been better for God just not to have created a material world? Right? Would it have been better for God not to have created trees or non-living material substances like fire whose action can harm trees? Would it have been better for God not to have created lions and wildebeests? Would it have been better for God not to have created human beings? or substances like water whose action can harm human beings? I think this is a, really uh, the question we should be asking. And I think when we ask that question, it's not at all obvious, at least not to me, that the answer is, yeah, yeah, it would have been better for God not to have created the material world. Uh, no lions, right? No wildebeests. Um, we might summarize this first reason that God uh, might permit evil, natural evil as follows. God could have prevented natural evil only by foregoing the good of a material universe or ecosystem, but it's doubtful that it would have been better for God to forego the good of a material universe or ecosystem, even for the sake of avoiding natural evil, and so it's doubtful that natural evil is evidence against God's existence. Let me come to a, a second reason why God might permit natural evil. That guy's as happy as the dog was in our earlier slide. That looks pretty good, doesn't it? I could get used to that in a hurry. Laying back in a hammock, the weather looks absolutely perfect. Reading a good book almost looks like paradise. Um, but it's not, uh, it's not our happiness, as good as that is actually, at least according to uh, most theistic traditions, Christian traditions certainly, does not consist in, in that, even as awesome as that is. Um, ultimate happiness uh, consists, can be found in God alone. 
So I'll put up a couple of quotations, one from St. Thomas Aquinas, one from St. Augustine. I won't read through them. You can read along as I, as I talk here. The, the, the idea is that anything we find, any creature, anything short of God is a finite good. It's good in some respects, but not in others. It's limited in its goodness. And human beings are such that the only thing that can ultimately bring us happiness, ultimate fulfillment, is going to be something that's unlimited goodness. And there's only one thing that's unlimited goodness, and that's God alone, the infinite good. Right? And that's why um, Augustine will say that our hearts are restless until they rest in, in God. Okay? Uh, we, we, as much as we may try, and as much good as there is in the universe, just go back to this picture here, um, our ultimate happiness, perfect happiness, cannot be found even in that, right? And yet, if that were my day-to-day -day life, right, I might be tempted to think that perfect happiness might, could be found in that, that I might be truly happy in that. But God knows better. God knows, God knows that, if that's, that if I thought my happiness could be found in the things of this world, uh, then I wouldn't be loving him above all things. And therefore, I wouldn't be doing what I need to be doing in order to reach what will ultimately make me happy, which is friendship with him and union with him. So one reason God might permit natural evil in the world is so that we don't think that, 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 that if that were our world, we might more easily confuse it with heaven. I think we're less likely to confuse the world that we actually live in, sprinkle it in as it is with a, with a hearty mixture of natural evil and suffering, where I think we're much less likely uh, to mistake it. And yet even with as much natural evil as we have in the, in the world, in my own experience, I often find that I am tempted to find my happiness in, cre in creatures especially when things are going well for me. It's often when I'm, when I'm suffering adversity uh, that it wakes me up, at, it shakes me up from that, uh, that impression. Um, so it might be that God permits natural evil so that we don't become con complacent, content, satisfied, thinking that our happiness consists in creatures rather than in him. Okay? Here's uh, St. Thomas Aquinas quoting St. Gregory the Great very briefly, right? The evils which weigh us down here drive us to go to God. So I'll skip over a couple of others, but we could put this sec second reason why God might permit natural evil uh, like this. Without natural evil, humans would be much more likely than they already are, and that we're already pretty likely... Uh, tend to do it, but we'd be more likely to become satisfied or complacent in the enjoyment of this world. But God doesn't want us to become satisfied or complacent in the enjoyment of this world because that's not actually where our ultimate happiness, perfect happiness, will reside. And so God has another reason to permit natural evil. These arguments, uh, anyone who's studied logic 
can see, I, I haven't put, set them out in, so to make them formally valid. One could easily do so, but I put them in a form that I think it's you know, more easy to, to di digest here. Um, okay. A third reason why God might permit natural evil uh, in order to make possible moral and spiritual goods which presuppose natural evil or to draw good from the natural evil and some of those goods being of a moral and spiritual sort. You probably recognize at least one of the people here, Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Um, uh, the other, some, anybody know? Yeah. Father Damien of Molokai. Yeah. Damien of Molokai, um, uh, who went to serve uh, those suffering from leprosy, who were on a you know on an island on a in a leper colony, basically. Even though the results of doing that were predictable, you know he's so he's sort of a, and he did in fact end up dying from leprosy. He's sort of a, a, a martyr of charity, you might might think. Both of these. Uh, and, and many, many others, right, engaging in uh, heroic acts of sacrifice. Uh, we admire these people of this sort so much, right, because of the, of the goodness that's in them, but that goodness is in part possible and exhibited uh, in response to uh, natural evil. And so a third reason God might permit natural evil is that it makes possible significant moral and spiritual goods that God once realized in his creation. Okay. So I've talked about natural evil for a while now, and now I want to shift uh, to moral evil and talk a little bit about why God might permit uh, moral evil, that is, the evil that uh, we do, or uh, evil that... Uh, is ascribed to us as agents from what we fail to do, right? When we fail to do what we should or when we do what we should not. Um, why would God permit that sort of evil, moral evil? A common response uh, to this question is what is uh, often called the free will defense. It's the idea uh, first of all, that the world is better if we have morally significant freedom than if we were to lack such freedom. Okay? Imagine uh, two sorts of worlds, one sort of world in which we're basically machines or automatons, we don't have real freedom, or, at least, or if we do have freedom, it's limited to matters of insignificance. We don't have the freedom to do real good in the world or real harm, right? Versus a world where we, we're not machines, we have freedom, and we have morally significant freedom. Like we have the, the dignity, if you will, of, of being able to bring about great good or great harm. Uh, the free will defense begins with the thought that, the, that it's a better world, the world in which we have morally significant freedom. But then it, it continues that with the, the idea that, uh, that God can't give us that freedom, and at the same time ensure that we never make evil choices. So the idea here is that the, the, the co cost, if you will, of, of giving us morally significant freedom, with which God hopes we will 
choose to use it to do good, the cost of that is that we might also use it to do evil, and there's nothing God could do if he gives us freedom to ensure that we always do the good. Okay? So if you've studied these issues, you know, you're probably familiar with that kind of response to the problem of moral evil. It's, it's, a, it's a very popular one. It's not one that is uh, accepted by all, uh, all theists, though. Um, uh, some, there are many uh, theists who would agree with that first bullet point, the world is better if we have morally significant freedom, but would not be so sure about that second bullet point, that God can't give us morally significant freedom uh, and it, at the same time ensure that we always use it to do good, right? So this gets into really deep and, and difficult questions concerning the relationship between God and creaturely freedom. But there's some who think that God, uh, that our free actions, while genuinely and morally significant and free, are not outside God's providence, not outside God's control. And if that's the case, then the second bullet point, which is part of the free will defense, would, wouldn't seem to work. It seems to work only on the view in which what, what we freely do sometime, somehow falls outside God's providence and control. Okay? So what could you say if you had, if you had a different view of, of freedom and God's relationship to freedom um, on which uh, our free choices are not outside God's control, on which God could have created a world in which we always freely choose the good? If God could have created that sort of world, why wouldn't he have? Right? Well, someone who, who thought that could, could, I think, still reasonably think that God, though he could have created us always freely choosing the good, he permits us to choose evil, and for us really to choose it so that it's our, our fault, but he permits that because of the good that moral evil makes possible. So here's... Here's a passage from, from St. Thomas to give you a sense of, of the sort of thing uh, that might be had in mind on, on this kind of approach to, to God's permission of moral evil. Um, so many, many goods are present in things which would not occur unless there were evils. For instance, there would not be the patience of the just if there were not the malice of their persecutors. There would not be a place for the justice of vindication if there were no offenses. Or from a contemporary philosopher, um, the last name you might recognize, shared with someone in the room here, there are, uh, there are certain kinds of exercise of free will that presuppose the existence of people who choose evil. For example, acts of forgiveness and mercy are not possible unless there are people who actually do evil things for which they can be forgiven. For people freely choose to act in a forgiving and merciful way, if, that, if they do that, uh, then uh, that's possible only in a world in which other people have actually chosen to do evil. So the idea here is that uh, if God wants to realize certain sorts of actions in his creation that we all recognize as, as good, as, as the instantiation of impressive goods or impressive values, things like patience, 
things like justice, things like forgiveness and mercy, that, that the realization of those things in the world presupposes uh, that there is moral evil in the world because all of these things are, in a, in a way, they, they require moral evil in order for the, these goods to be instantiated. And so God might permit moral evil uh, in order that these goods be realized. And one might say not only that they might be realized in human action, but they might be realized in divine action as well. The mercifulness of God, right? The justice of God. These things are displayed in the world. They wouldn't really be displayed in the world, uh, or at least not in that same way, if there were not the permission of moral evil. Okay, so I'm pretty much at the, at the end here. So just in summary, why might God permit evil? We've talked about reasons why he might permit natural evil. It seems to be part of the package of creating a material universe. It comes along with the good of creating a material universe or ecosystem. That we not become satisfied or complacent in the enjoyment of this world. God doesn't want that because he knows that our true fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment, perfect happiness is found only in union with him, not in any creature. So it's important that we realize that, lest we might love creatures more than God and therefore uh, fail in what's needed to achieve union and friendship with him. And in order to make possible moral and spiritual goods, which presuppose naturally, in order to make uh, possible that heroic uh, virtue as displayed by folks like Mother Teresa. Why might God permit moral evil? These are the, the first, the free will defense Maybe our having a choice between good and evil requires that God allow evil. We can't have the freedom to do good unless we also have freedom to do evil as well. Or even if God could give us the freedom to do good and ensure that we always do good with it and never do evil, uh, it's still the case that the instantiation of certain goods, mercy, forgiveness, etc., presupposes God's permission of moral evil. And maybe he really is into mercy and, and forgiveness and wants to see those things displayed in the world. And so premise two of the argument from evil is vulnerable, it seems. Um, uh, maybe God could eliminate evil completely, but that, doesn't, that he would do so doesn't follow from things being all good because uh, there may be some really important good things that would be lost were he to eliminate evil as far as his power would allow. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith. 
and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.